Hello, and welcome to NPN Chronicles podcast with David Wallace, the PV reporter. Today on episode two, we're excited to have an interview with Dr. Naveen Pimaraju, an NPN specialist. Hello, this is David Wallace with PV Reporter. Today we're talking with Dr. Naveen Pimaraju, Associate Professor at the Department of Leukemia, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Very pleased to have this interview with you today, Dr. Pimaraju. David, thank you for having me. I've been a fan of yours for many years. Uh, Thank you, likewise. All right, we're going to go ahead and roll right in. With MPNs, we have a long list of symptoms. I have problems with insomnia, as do many patients I know. Why do NPNs cause insomnia, and what can we do about it? David, thank you for this very, very important question. And I'll start off by saying this is something of great importance to me as a healthcare provider and also to you and to our patients. Insomnia, or difficulty with sleep, much like the word MPN, represents a real family of diseases, disorders, and diagnoses. So when we look at our patients with MPN and difficulty sleeping, there are several categories that come to mind that I would like to highlight. One is, of course, the great work of our friend and colleague, Dr. Ruben Mesa, who's really pioneered, he and his group, the whole principal class of so-called MPN symptom burden. That is what I interpret as clinically meaningful symptoms and signs that the patient actually he or she feels. And one of those is difficulty concentrating, tiredness, fatigue, and now we're finally realizing that difficulty sleeping at night is either connected to these or or maybe its own separate phenomenon. So I think I would look at it in terms of symptom burden, and and I'll go over these in detail. Number two is what I've heard Claire Harrison, another one of our great colleagues, call so-called, quote, unquote, presenteeism, David, presenteeism. Mm -hmm. So we've, t- we've heard about absenteeism when we were younger as students, and presenteeism is something that I think is really gaining a, a foothold, and it describes the patient with MPN, whether P. vera, ET, myelofibrosis, or one of the non-classical MPNs, where you have symptoms such as insomnia, such as fatigue, that don't quite result in, say, ER visit, hospitalization, or even missing work, but it's that feeling that we all know that you're there but not really there. And so I think that's another category. And then finally, I think that the third category is other, David, which is sleep apnea, actual metabolic or other diagnoses that are on top of or in addition to the MPN. So as I focus on the MPN itself, insomnia is part of the disease. It's underappreciated. It's it's not talked about very often. The main way to think about it, if it's due to the MPN itself, David, is from what, what I call a cytokine platform. If you think about myelofibrosis, PVET, these are disorders that have high cytokines, and my colleague, Dr. Angela Fleischman, has done a lot of work on this, mm-hmm. which is that these disorders, now we know as blood cancers, are sky high in these cytokines. So these are messengers that the body is generating abnormally and all the time, in the case of the MPN, proteins, messengers that are revving up the body. So it's, uh, there's a whole, whole scene, a whole battlefield going on. And a lot of our patients, even though, even though we think of it as more for myelofibrosis, it can be for PV and ET patients, it feels like you have the flu or sub-flu-like symptoms all the time. That's what I'm talking about by the cytokine-mediated phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so you, if it's going on all throughout the day, well then, this can be happening at night too. So insomnia can be due to the MPN itself because of this cytokine-mediated storm. 
Two, it can be due to high blood counts, say in the patient with P. vera, that's called hyperviscosity, uh, a feeling of fullness that may prevent gravitationally or positionally just being able to sleep. And then, of course, the medications themselves, even the JAK inhibitors and some of the other medicines we use can cause insomnia as a known side effect. And then finally, I think we have to say in the same breath that a lot of our patients are older, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, and a lot of comorbidities are there. So the patient with MPN with insomnia, you want to get your heart checked out to look at your ejection fraction on echo, chest x-ray to look for pneumonia or restrictive lung disease. And then I think sleep apnea, or OSA, is a highly underdiagnosed, underappreciated diagnosis that many of our patients have in addition to their MPN. So, David, those are some of my thoughts uh, in discussing insomnia and the patient with MPN. Okay. All right. Very good. I appreciate you giving us a very detailed run-through on that. That's probably the best discussion I've heard on insomnia. Thank you. Okay. You've contributed to a research study on the impact of the number of mutations and survival and response outcomes to hypomethylating agents in patients with MDS or MDS-NPN overlap. So a couple questions here. Can you tell us more about this study and explain the MDS-NPN overlap syndrome? David, thank you. These are outstanding questions. So I was honored to be a part of this recent study led by my colleague and senior collaborator, Dr. Garcia Monero. Uh, we recently published this data in the journal OncoTarget, so for people to look up on their own. This data set was very important. It did focus, the majority of patients had MDS or myelodysplastic syndrome, but there were about 30 patients that we included who had the MDS-MPN overlap syndrome. And the clinical findings are, I think, of pretty high significance, which basically shows that the number of molecular DNA mutations, not those that someone's born with, but those that you're acquired, actually matters in these disorders. And that when you really take a look at the number of them, so three or more really portends for a worse prognosis and survival outcome. And one mutation in particular, the TP53 mutation, was found to be particularly uh, associated with a bad prognosis. Okay. MDS-MPN overlap syndrome patients, so there were 31 patients in that group, this is a very important entity to tell your viewership. So myelodysplastic syndrome slash myeloproliferoneoplasm, this category has changed names over the years, but in the latest classification scheme in 2006 WHO, it actually has its own category. So under this, you have three or four main diseases. You have CMML, which is chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. That's probably the most common and most recognized. So not CML, that's chronic myeloid leukemia, but CMML. Okay. Second, you have a disorder called JMML, or juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia, usually found in pediatric patients, pretty rare disease. Third, you have what's called atypical CML, David, which is an unfortunate name to describe a previously difficult to, to describe disease, but now has its own separate classification and mutations. And then finally, you do have the MDS-MPN unclassified overlap syndrome, as if that wasn't confusing enough. And yes, I have patients with all four of these uh, in the clinic. The CMML is by far the most common uh, out of these. Okay. So this family is very important. So to compare and contrast that to our patients with the classical MPNs, PVET, uh, MF, a couple of practice points. One, as the name implies, patients in this group have features of both MPNs, which usually means a proliferative or can mean a high white blood cell count or high cell count turnover, and then signs and symptoms of patients with MDS, which usually, usually generally can mean low blood counts 
dysplastic blood counts, anemia, thrombocytopenia, so things requiring blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. It's a confusing and complicated diagnosis for the pathologist, the clinician, and the patient because you have elements of two on their own rare conditions, and now you combine it into an even more super rare condition. Part two of this is the outcomes, just like in all of our other more known entities, can be all over the place. You can, in fact, have patients who are very aggressive, transformed to acute myeloid leukemia quite quickly, and that's what the aim of this paper was to find, was can we identify patients at higher risk? And again, if you have three or more molecular mutations or the TP53, that looks like it's higher risk for these things. Mm -hmm. And then also, you can have patients who might have a potentially more indolent or low to intermediate risk disease course, so we want to try to identify those patients. Finally, David, the implication here is how do you treat patients with MDS-NPN? There's no specific necessarily disease-focused treatment for patients with this. CMML patients historically have been treated as MDS, actually, as pure MDS, so hypomethylator agents like D-cytidine or azacytidine have been used, but we know that many of these patients have poor outcomes, so we at MD Anderson and our group have been trying to pioneer a combination approach using the JAK inhibitor with the hypomethylator. So something like ruxolitinib plus azacytidine or decytamine mm-hmm. for either patients who have myelofibrosis or the MDS-MPN overlap syndrome or even those patients who progressed to frank AML, which is usually defined as 20% blast or higher. So that's basically the summary, which is an overlap syndrome that's very rare but more recognized unique and distinct biology that borrows from both individual MDS and MPN, varying outcomes that we are starting to understand and stratify, and then possibly a unique therapy approach that's needed for patients with this overlap syndrome. Okay. All right. Perfect, Dr. Pimaraj. You you actually answered my part two of the question, so very good. (laughs) Let's uh, talk about social media. So you created the hashtag MPNSM, which is Myoproliferative Neoplasm Social Media, for use in Twitter, and quite a few specialists have become very active now. What impact has this had on the medical community, and why do you think maybe some specialists have not joined in, so to speak? David, thank you for this uh, outstanding uh, inquiry into social media with uh, patients and providers with MPN. As you know, this is a passion for me. As my clinical and research career has been growing, I've also developed a, a, an interest in how to get information, reliable, accurate information directly to both the general public and to patients, caregivers, and providers with rare diseases. That's, I guess, a real passion area that I've developed over the last few years. Mm-hmm. One way i found that to be particularly useful and effective is, as you said, through social media and most effectively Twitter as sort of the platform of choice. The way I look at it is I think there are three major forces that go beyond just the general Google search that are really helping to inform patients directly from either patients themselves or providers. One, as you mentioned, social media, Twitter, hashtag communities. Two, I think patients and advocates such as yourself who are individuals who are trying to get reliable information in super rare diseases directly to patients, either through their own experience or through expert interviews such as what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And then three, definitely have to acknowledge organizations and entities such as Patient Power and and other organizations who are conducting a separate uh, way to get information to uh, healthcare stakeholders. With regards to my activity, it's been been a real pleasure. Uh, You're right, it started out as a grassroots. 
registered a hashtag MPNSM, I Look for Neoplasm Social Media, with several co-founders, which includes uh, Mike Thompson, who's one of the most prolific and really my Twitter mentor uh, in social media, mm-hmm. Vikas uh, the MPN expert uh, from Toronto, Canada, and uh, Ruben Mesa, our friend and colleague, who's now the head of the San Antonio Cancer Center. Well, what we did, David, is we put it out there. I tweeted at Ash several years ago, didn't really hear anything much, kept tweeting, and then we got several other colleagues, both junior and senior, might I add, so it's not an age-dependent phenomenon, Mm -hmm. and it's really caught caught on. Uh, We have hundreds uh, and possibly now thousands of different unique users. We track this every year, so I have published on this, as you mentioned. And it's been really cool. What it's been able to do is bring all the stakeholders together in a non-sponsored, free, completely usable platform. I'll give you an example. We've looked at the breakdown. Perhaps about half of the users are MDs, such as myself, mainly physician researchers, thought leaders, but but physicians. But the other 50% is a breakdown of other people, patients, caregivers, patient advocates, entities, pharma, other people. And so I think it's been a great way to have real-life discussions in archived fashion, real-time. I've had my own tweet-ups, as they call them, Twitter meetups, where we've uh, featured other investigators. I've put my own thoughts out there, papers that I've published or other papers from other groups. So basically, I find it to be a great way to get accurate information in real time to the right people who actually want to find it. And this is beyond a simple Google search. Number two, at the time of medical conferences, we've seen a big uptick in just our own use as grassroots physicians, but also among other stakeholders as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been a great way for, for me and others to discuss, for example, ASH abstracts as soon as they come out while you're there in the meeting. It's sort of a meeting within a meeting, David, where you can, and then all everyone can follow. You can see what Surge Verstopsic Ruben Mesa, others have said, even if they themselves are not tweeting. I think that's kind of the amazing thing. Lastly, I would say it's a way for patients to get involved. Patients with rare diseases, you have high-risk myelofibrosis, and there's nobody in your town, your community, your church, your state, anywhere that has the same experience that you had. It's a way to get on there, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and to find at least groups that know what you have and, and, and can share experiences. Obviously, I caution people, as you might imagine, and I know you do too, that all of these, even this interview, this is general advice for the general public, mm-hmm. specific advice, specific medical advice for a person's individual hematocrit for their P-Vera, for example. That should always be taken offline and always done in a proper clinical medical format. But for people to get ideas for the latest scientific breakthroughs, clinical ideas from thought leaders or just general support from a community to know that there are others like you out there it has been a game changer and revolutionary and frankly for me it's the first thing i check in the morning to know all the information going on in all the fields mpn leukemia bpdcn all these rare uh, subtypes that i treat okay excellent uh dr Pramaraju. that's i follow your hashtag almost daily and i learn quite a bit so I appreciate you doing that for the community, and I find it fascinating myself. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Sure. What are some of the clinical trials in progress that look hopeful and we should keep an eye on? And can you also maybe give us an update on the SL-401 trial you're working on? Oh, thank you. So I think for the general community, the two that I would highlight pretty rare, as you well know, in the MPNs to ever have randomized data, which means 
taking two groups, comparing directly in the same clinical trial. And it's also rare for us to have the largest kind, which are called phase three. So the two I would highlight the community to are the two ongoing uh, phase three trials that are really trying to answer the question in different ways, which is, which one shall we start with for the therapy for the patient with either PV or ET? Shall we start with interferon as a frontline therapy or hydroxyurea? This is the ages old question uh, in the clinic. And as many providers as, uh, and thought leaders as there are, you're going to get essentially different answers, 50-50 split or, or however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing so far with this question, the age-old question of hydroxyurea versus interferon, as you well know, is sort of a clinical discussion, comfort of the physician, comfort of the patient. Maybe there are some real true side effects or, or disorders that the patient has that make one or the other truly contraindicated, of course, especially in the setting of interferon-based therapy. But we've never had up till this point head-to-head data. And so there are three, uh, there are two ongoing studies. The MPDRC is doing one trial uh, that's American-based. And then in Europe, there's another trial that's ongoing with a newer formulation, a so-called ROPEG or different pegylated interferon. Mm-hmm. I would pay attention for everyone in the community to these two trials. They were presented as preliminary ongoing results at this past ASH in December, and I would be, I I really want all of us to look out for those results, which I hope will mature more in the coming years, and I actually expect to see that frequently at the EHA presentation, ASCO, ASH, all of these meetings. I don't know if it's going to answer the final question of hydroxyurea versus interferon, but at least it's helping us in a very controlled, randomized way to see. So I think those are those are very important. In myelofibrosis, of course, there are many ongoing clinical trials. I would give you categories, basically. There are some trials that are testing out new JAK inhibitors. That's very exciting. So there's only one currently approved. So we need to see what are the maturing data on the other JAK inhibitors as single agents. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, combinations, which I think are very exciting and interesting as a concept, but we need to see the data. For example, combining... JAK inhibitor with interferon or JAK inhibitor with other therapies. So uh, I I think those we'll be looking forward to hearing about later this year at ASH. Uh, For my own work, as you asked, I have uh, several clinical trials uh, uh, with Dr. Serge Verstavsik, my colleague here. We have an investigator-initiated trial with LCL-161, which is a SMAC mimetic. I presented those results at ASH as an oral presentation, which is showing an approximately 25 to 30% overall response rate as an oral weekly agent and represents a new way to treat patients in our field, which is a so-called SMAC mimetic. The second drug is the SL-401, which is a sponsored study. Uh, The LCL-161 is with Novartis. SL-401 is with Stemline. This is a a diphtheria toxin fused to human IL-3, and it's being tested in a variety of different malignancies, including a rare cancer called BPDCN, as well as leukemias and in myelofibrosis and CMML. This drug is different. It's an IV drug, uh, and it's given in this particular trial that I'm uh, helping to lead. It's given as three days IV uh, on a three- to four-week cycle. And uh, those results we presented as a poster at ASH, and so those are publicly available as well, uh, showing some degree of responses in both patients with myelofibrosis and CMML. But these are early results, right? This is phase one, phase two data. And so, of course, these are ongoing. This is an ongoing clinical trial, and we look forward to updating those results in the coming years. Okay. All right. Very good. We are hearing about the familial NPNs as well as the hereditary gene. Can you help us understand the difference there? Yeah, I think this is extremely important uh, for everyone to kind of gear 
you're into. So basically the premise here is in our modern DNA molecular genetic age, a lot of folks are getting uh, molecular testing and there's really little to no framework. So hopefully what I can say here can help to give some context. So there's a couple of principles. One is almost now 90% plus of patients with MPN now will have uh, a genetic mutation, a DNA mutation, either JAK2, the most common, followed by CalR, followed by MPL or MIPL. But it's important to note that the vast majority of patients will have what's called a random or somatic mutation. Somatic means not in your hereditary germline, not in your bloodline. Okay. So these are considered to be sporadic events, random in nature. We don't know the cause. And by definition, they should not be passed on from generation to generation. Okay, so that's by far the most common thing in these rare disorders, which really only affect anywhere from four to six people per 100,000. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's fine. Number two is uh, everybody at my institution, we do check a, a gene panel, which is meant to go deeper than these the big three driver mutations. And that's because growing data from our group and others, including our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic and many other places, have shown that other mutations can matter uh, in, in the MPNs. For example, ASXL1, just to give one example. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite common if you go to a referral center or an academic center such as mine that we'll check, for example, an 81 gene panel, and then we'll have those results. And those may or may not help in terms of prognostic scoring, in terms of should you go to transplant or not. Of course, those are individualized treatment decisions. And then the third thing is what you mentioned, which is familial or hereditary. You know, before we thought of these diseases, MPNs, as very, very sporadic, only case reports of families having multiple members. But now, of course, family history is a, a staple of the history now. People have a greater understanding of what their uncles or aunts or grandfathers had. And of course, now we're looking for these familial genetic things. And it is true. I would estimate anywhere, David, from Seven to ten percent, maybe more, of families actually may have a familial predisposition for MPNs. We don't know that yet, but it, it seems that it's an underappreciated number. What we're looking for here is something possibly beyond the usual Jack, Calar, or Mipple, and we're looking for families who have more than you know two or more family members with an MPN, or possibly another family member with CML, leukemia, some type of a blood cancer in their family. And uh, what you would do is you'd get put forward for genetic testing. It has to be done in a very controlled setting, obviously, with genetic counselors and a team. Of course, very few centers have this. We do have this. And the goal there would be, yes, we appreciate that there are probably more familial predisposition families out there than we thought. Two, most of these are hitherto undiscovered, which means unlike breast cancer, say, for example, which has the BRCA gene, we don't have that yet in, in the MPN. So we're still looking for either something like that or, or multiple mutations. So at this time, what I would say is if you are interested in finding out if you have a familial predisposition or you do have multiple family members, you, you want to get referred to an academic center and you want to have a full genetic testing, which should be in a certified environment, and obviously your doctor will know more about that. Mm -hmm. I would caution that a lot of this is still at the research level, David, so we have not yet identified a true a recurrent germline gene yet. But there are patients... Uh, and you, you may have seen this as well. There are some studies from our colleagues that have shown this sort of predisposition polymorphism, and that may be something that you've seen as well. So there is a haplotype, JAK haplotype polymorphism that uh, possibly may predispose you. And then finally, there is something called CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. You may have seen this in the New England Journal over the last few years. Mm -hmm. This is where you have a patient who's a healthy patient, 
but a genome panel is done and it's found to have any number of gene mutations that are normally associated with MPNs or MDS, such as ASXL1, TET2, JAK2. And actually what these two New England Journal papers showed, uh, David, is that patients who have these in a large population study may have a higher risk of uh, mortality from cardiovascular causes, interestingly, not necessarily transformation of blood cancers, mm-hmm. with lots of different ongoing science uh, going on there. And so these are sort of the separate categories from the asymptomatic patient who has a molecular mutation all the way up to the patient with a definitive MPN who has other additional mutations. And then finally, as you asked, yes, there is such a thing as familial predisposition, and we're trying to identify who those patients are at this time. Okay. All right. Dr. Primaraju, I really appreciate you shedding light on these NPN issues, and thank you so much for interviewing with us today. David, I just want to tell you thank you. Your level of preparation shows in interviews like this, which uh, are not easy to do. The information that you're putting out there I think is valuable for providers, for other patients, and you strive to give the truth to people when there's very little information, surprisingly still in 2018. So thanks for everything that you're doing out there. Thank you for listening and stay with us on episode three as I continue my PV journey with a second trip to the emergency room in three days. And if you don't want to miss any future episodes, go to the PV Reporter contact page, pvreporter.com forward slash contact dash A and subscribe to our newsletter.